So, from Maharaji's temple and that incredible atmosphere, we all boarded a bus to a remote Himalayan town called Kosani, not more than a hundred miles, as the crow flies, to the 29,000-foot Himalayan peaks. It was an absolutely amazing place, where very few Westerners had been, and there I was, with Ramdas and four other fellow travelers, all of us, except for Ramdas, under the age of 25. That was a mighty leap for me from the streets of Montreal to this rarefied perch in the Himalayas. And so we arranged for a cottage to stay in on top of the hill that looked on to these mountains, and we set up house. I think there was about five of us dragging buckets of water from the well way down the hill, and food from the town below, and meditating many hours a day, which was the purpose of this retreat. And that was a new thing for me. I mean, I had done TM meditation and so on, but we were practicing a Buddhist meditation called Vipassana, basically insight meditation, using the breath to get one-pointed. In those surroundings, actually those surroundings included uh, meditating in a cow shed, which had been used, we were told, by Haryakan Baba, this incredible Siddha who lived in that area and died in the 20s. So it was in this sacred space that I started to have real meditative experiences for the first time. And all the while... In the evenings, Ramdas would sit with us and relate stories of his journey through psychedelics and consciousness. It was such a rich experience and very otherworldly. I remember in the mornings we'd get up at six to meditate and Ramdas would come along and gently wake every one of us up and say, Good morning, Brother Mitchell, which was my name at the time. Now, at the same time, Way back up the road in Kenchi, Maharaji started sending Westerners to this little town, saying to them, Why don't you go meditate with Ramdas? Well, that was the last thing in the world that Ramdas wanted a growing group of needy, groping Westerners. <laughs> so, as this drama unfolded, we realized we needed a bigger space, which led us to take over the Gandhi Ashram facility across town on the other hill. It was there that we sort of had an official ashram with about 15 or 20 people in this sacred space where Gandhi wrote one of his books. Uh, it was quite a scene. Uh, one, I remember one of the things that went on was that each of us sat with Ramdas. He was the teacher, obviously. And he would say, just looking directly into your eyes, if there's anything you're afraid to say, that you can't tell anybody, say it now. And so people would blurb out all of their thoughts that they were afraid of. Now, we were in this ashram, and the walls were like paper thin. So everybody on either side, and even below, could hear everything that was going on in this little interview that Ram Dass did with people. So we all got to know each other's crazy thoughts. And they were all pretty much the same, usually based around some sexual hang-up. So that was an, a fun thing. And then after a while, you got to see that 
these thoughts had no substance. It was a great exercise. So there we were, perched on top of the world. I mean, we could walk out of our room and sit on a, a stone uh, parapet that actually looked right out into the, uh, you know, those 29,000-foot peaks. I mean, it was just, the mist would break and you'd see the peaks. It was just incredible, incredible. It was a dream come true for me to be in a place like this and to have Maharaji, his blessings on all of us sitting in this place and doing this work together with Ramdas. It was a dream I never even knew I had. It's interesting that in India, all marriages are planned by the astrologer in the villages because they know that the information you're going to get through your senses has nothing to do with your long-range compatibility. And therefore, they'll work it out according to these other kinds of things. All right, now you're born then into this. You get born. You go through the fetal stage and you get born. And you're a, a, a neonate, a seven-pound neonate. Now, a seven-pound neonate... You, if you knew at that point, if you were fully conscious, you would know that you were still fully conscious and you were just in a seven-pound neonate. However, the seven-pound neonate gets hungry and it cries. There's hunger and crying and so on. And everybody around you treats you as if you're that neonate. It's just as if you came off the assembly line at Detroit and you drove the car off the line and then everybody treated you as if you were the car. It now then may take you all your lifetime or many lifetimes to wake up to the realization that this particular bizarre circumstance had happened. That you got caught in this thing, in this wrong model of who you were. And it's called the veil or the dust in the eyes or the veil of ignorance or your sanskaras or whatever. There are thousands of words that describe the thing that made us think for a mistake that I was that body so that when I lost the body in that first drug session, I got frightened. I mean, if I get out of my Chevrolet, I'm not going to get frightened, even if the Chevrolet goes over a cliff if I'm not in it, even if I think I'm my body because I don't think I'm the Chevrolet. But I didn't realize I was in a rent-a-body. <laughs> you know, not only a rent-a-body, but a rent-a-mind. A rent-a-mind, everybody. That my rational thought process was in nature as well. That was part and parcel of the whole trip I bought when I got born into this thing. But it's certainly been seductive, and I certainly thought I was thinking, and that my thoughts were me. I'm a thinking being. Now, it is for these reasons that I say that the problem is getting free of nature. So that when you, like I'm up in New Hampshire in a little cabin, see, up in the woods, up in Franklin, in my father's farm. And all around are beautiful trees, and they got red leaves and golden leaves and yellow leaves. And always in the past, I came up to New Hampshire in the autumn to dig the leaves. So I'm sitting in my cabin, and the shutters are all down, and I'm sitting there. 
and somebody comes in and says, how can you be in here when all the leaves are so beautiful? And I say, because I'm not yet free enough to be able to be with the leaves without getting caught in the beauty, getting caught in the beauty. Now, this business of being caught is the critical matter that is the first step that people undertake in the road to becoming liberated. It is the technique which Gurdjieff has so exquisitely enunciated in his model of self-remembering. And Gurdjieff says it in one way, and Rodney Collin, the disciple of Uspensky, says it in a slightly different way. Gurdjieff says, your problem is that you identify, you learn to identify as a child with your body, then you identify with your mother's concept of who you are, so you develop social roles, and you identify with the concepts of the universe all around you, so you become a thinking, rational being in a rational system. And then pretty soon when you're angry, you say, I'm angry, and you identify with the anger, and you are anger. And you identify with being in love, and you identify with desires, and you identify with your lusts, and you identify with everything. Just go from one thing. You identify with other people's opinions of you, what Dave Reisman calls the other directed man. Rodney Collin calls it fascination. He says, we're like bees. We just are so fascinated by everything. We're just like going from flower to flower. We, like, if you're listening to me and just hearing my words and aren't conscious at this moment that you're listening to me and hearing my words, you're fascinated, you're trapped. That's where you're at. That's what it comes down to. Because all the time I'm talking to you, I'm going, that mantra is going on and on inside of me. And from that place, which is completely outside of this game of lecture and our visiting together, I'm watching this whole drama unfold, just like I were one of the actors on the stage. No fascination at all. I'm in the same place as if I'm saying, oh, my Padme Hum, in my cabin in New Hampshire or in the uh, ashram in India. Same place. There's no place to go. There's no place you ever go. You're always in the same place. When you begin to realize there's nowhere to go, it's, you know, it's quite shaky, shaking at first. Driving and driving and there's nowhere to go. You're not getting anywhere because <laughs> you're there. You're here. Now, the fascination or identification, if you understand that concept, that is the attachment to your senses, and that is the game, is to get free of that. And the process of self-remembering is the process of developing the witness, or in Ramana Maharshi's terms, the I-thought. That is that place from which you observe all of your desires, all of your attachments, all of your feelings, just like Bhagwan Das said to me, the feeling is a wave that's disappearing off into the distance. Well, in the same way, when first what happens is, as you, those of you that have studied the Gurdjieff system know, you say, all right, I'm going to self-remember. There I am self-remembering. And then something comes along and you start to get angry and you so forget your self-remembering because you're so busy. Why, that son of a, I'm going to... And about two days later, you wake up and say, holy mackerel, wasn't I self-remembering at that point? And you completely forgot you're even trying to do it, see? So you say, okay, well, I'll start again. So you start again, and this time maybe you only fall asleep for a day and a half. 
And if you keep at it, if you really work at it as hard as you work to learn how to drive a car, for example, pretty soon you get down so that you get to the point where you keep falling asleep just as often, but you wake up very quickly. And then you get to the point where like what, I, what happens to me now is I start to get angry and the starting to get angry is the cue, the stimulus that pushes me back into the self-remembering. And I say, there I go starting to get angry. The minute I say, there I go starting to get angry, I have now identified myself with the witness. And I am no longer the angry. I am now the person who is observing the angry. And by doing that, I have just extricated myself from going through the attachment to that emotion through that whole cycle. You see how that works? Am I getting through to you? Okay. Therefore, that method of, of developing the witness is a tremendously powerful first step of a two-step operation to, on this journey because you begin, what you do is you just observe your, that which is in nature doing its thing. You observe the laws of nature as you are they, as you are they. Yeah. Just like you watch a tree drop its seeds and germinate and grow and watch big oaks out of acorns grow and all that, you watch the laws of your own personality, you watch the laws of your own desires, you just watch them. The witness doesn't do anything. This is very, very critical. See, a kid will come up to me and he'll say, well, I'll tell you, I use the witness. He said, I'm Catholic and I have, uh, sometimes I masturbate and then I say, oh, damn it, you did it again. Now that's the witness. I said, no, man. The witness says, there I am masturbating, and then the witness says, there I am damning myself for masturbating. All the witness is is a witness. The witness is the non-game place. The witness is not active. The witness doesn't do anything. The witness isn't witnessing. The witness is just the I, E-Y-E or I, the spiritual I. It's merely there. It's always there. It's always there. And it does nothing. It's got no vested interest, no morality, no laws, no game going. It doesn't care what you do. All it does is see it all. Now, how do you develop the witness? Well, there are devices that are designed to help you develop the witness. Heuristic devices. Rodney Collins says the problem is that you get so fascinated with things like anger or the candle flame or whatever it is that you become the thing itself. And therefore, there are thousands of me's but there's always like you and the thing, that's the relationship. He says what to do is to introduce a third thing into the system. It's just like, let's say you're doing something that you've always done. Say you do asanas and you're doing your asanas and you've always done them alone in your room and then suddenly somebody's standing there just watching you do them. Well now, what happens, whether you like to think of it at all, is that which is your ego gets called into play and you are observing how he's seeing your asanas. Okay. Now imagine that that third person, that person, so that there's you and like the book you're reading and then there's somebody else there, is somebody who's like my guru. He's a perfect mirror. He's got no game going at all. No game going at all. He doesn't care whether I read the book or don't read the book. He's just saying, reading the book, reading the book. That kind of a consciousness. So Rodney Collins says, it doesn't matter who you put in there as the third person, you can call it the witness, you can call it Buddha consciousness, and you can 
read about Buddha and think about Buddha and keep Buddha with you all the time so that every time you're anywhere, Buddha's there too. That's the third person. You can read about Christ and keep Christ there. You read about the guru, keep the guru there. You can read, you can think about the sun. Aditya hridayam punyam savshatru binashanam. All evil vanishes from life for he who keeps the sun in his heart. There's the third thing, the sun in your heart. How can I go and do you in when the sun is in my heart? See, as long as I can keep conscious of that third thing, I'm protected from getting trapped in my own fascinations or in my own identification. Do you see how that works? Now, that's what a device like this is about. You see, that's what the device like, like a mala and doing japam is about. I mean, people look at it and they think of a priest doing the rosary and they think of sort of like a mechanical religiosity of some sort. But, oh, it's much more sophisticated than that. It works, that works, but it's much more sophisticated than that. Because what this is constantly doing is taking you to that place where that third person is. So everything else is in relation to that other vantage point. Let us take the traditional one that all the Tibetans use. Om Mani Padme Hum. I'm giving you the Tibetan trans the enunciation. Aum Bidme Hum Hum. Way it works. Om, Aum, the sound of the universe. You know, all the sounds of the universe, Aum starts in the back of your mouth and comes up to your tongue. Aum, Aum, Aum. Mane is like a jewel or like pure, or the Atman or pure consciousness. That's that thing. Om is the jewel. Padme is the lotus. Om, Mane, Padme. Om is the jewel in the center of the lotus. Or you can think of the lotus as the unfolding senses or inside your senses. Om Mane Padme Hung becomes manifest in your heart. That is, that part of Om which is manifest in you is in your heart. Hung, the heart cave, Hung. And when you say Hung right with your nose closed, it reverberates in your chest until pretty soon it reminds you, it keeps that heart cave going all the time. So literally, I live in a cave. I can be driving in my car, or I can be sitting in the Hilton, or I can be anywhere, but I'm always in the same place. I'm in this very groovy cave, you see? And in this cave are the grooviest people, see? Because they're all the same person. They have different forms. There's Buddha over there in the corner, and there's Hanuman the monkey, and there's uh, Ramakrishna over there, you know, going into ecstasy. and. Uh, all these groovy people hanging around, they're my spiritual community. They're the people I hang out with. They're the people that live in my cave. And I'm constantly dipping into my cave. So I'm talking along with you. And every time I move one of these beads, which since I'm doing a Tibetan mantra, I do with my left hand. This is a little, uh, one of those intellectual cuties. <laughs> well, with the right hand, you do Hindu mantras, and you don't use your first finger because that's the pointing finger, so you use your third finger moving your thumb. So you're doing Om Manipad, and this is a, a, a Buddhist mala. It's made of the Bodhi tree, and this is a Hindu mala. It's made of the Tulsi wood. These are the two different very holy woods in India. This mala 
was given to me by my teacher. It was given to him by the guru 15 years ago. When he got it, these little beads were all square, flat. And 100,000 times a day for 15 years, Ram, 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 Ram. He's a high Brahmin. He's very pure. He counts. That's what keeps you locked in the golden chain when you count, you know, the steps to paradise. I'm 10 million Rams up the steps. It's the point system. Um, and now these are all round and smooth just by the human touch. And, you know, like this is invested with so much spiritual energy that when he gives it to me, it's like giving me the, you know. All right. So every time I move one of these beads, now let's say I start to talk to you and I'm talking about something that I don't quite understand. So I'm really listening to myself talk and I kind of get caught in it. I mean, I get fascinated by it for a moment and I'm just doing this mechanically. And then suddenly my thumb I'm aware that I'm doing something and immediately, oh my, they put me home, goes through another time. I go back into that and then that changes my frame of reference and I get uncaught. In other words, this device is constantly taking me back to that place. At the same time, it's a form of worship, you see, because I am worshiping, this is bhakti yoga also, you see, this is a form of devotion because you're devoted to that third person, that third place, because that place is God, is consciousness, is light, is, is everything you want to conceive of as, that, as, that, as purity, as that pure higher consciousness. Now, I have not been systematic thus in my talk, and I know you're probably tired and I've probably talked too long. Um, let me just say a couple of more words about um, consciousness, and I will leave the rest of it undone because I can't really do all the training and teaching you because it would take many, many hours. Um, to understand how the guru told me my mother died of spleen. I mean, that's an interesting thing. It'd be fun to know how he does that, you know, <laughs> like what's up his sleeve or, you know, what's his game? What's his game? What's your game there? Well, my game is this. Once you've made your mind one-pointed, right, now here's the way you work. You get, you get your mind calmer and calmer, as the, as the Mahamudra vow says. At first, Tilopa's thing of Mahamudra, at first, the mind is like a waterfall. Your mind's going in all directions. It's like a wild, drunken monkey, Vivekananda says. It's like a monkey that is moving to begin with, that you've fed wine to, so it's drunk in addition, and it's just been bitten by a scorpion. That was Vivekananda's way of creating what the mind is like. You know, it's just jumping from thing to thing. I got an itch, I hear your word, I'm thinking about this, gee, I wonder, gee, it's dark, you know, like the seats are hard, I gotta go to the bathroom, you know, like 10,000 things, and they just like, oh, flip, 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 flip. It's called free association. <laughs> okay, there it all is. That's the drunken monkey. So pretty soon what you do, those are called the vrittis and the chitta. I won't get you into the terminology tonight because that's too much. It sounds like double talk. But what you do slowly is you calm down these waves until pretty soon it's just like a very fast moving river. And the way you do that is by getting into the witness and watching it all happen. That's one way of doing it. And pretty soon as you're watching it all happen, it starts to happen less and less because you, you're not lost in it as much. 
and you sort of cease to let your mind, you just watched it and it sort of becomes embarrassed. It's very funny. It's like your ego gets embarrassed under the scrutiny of this thing. And then finally, it gets just like an ocean. Your mind is perfectly calm. I mean, you're just perfectly calm. And now, when you work on becoming one-pointed in your thinking, say you're doing tratak, which is a technique of working with a candle flame. This is part of, this is one of the arms of yoga, uh, which is um, pratyahara. You look at an external object. Now, most people, when they look at a candle flame, they sit down, you, the candle flame should be up here. It should be right above where your ajna is, the sixth chakra. You look at the candle flame and you try to make something happen. Well, already you've lost. The game is you put the candle there and you are here and that's it. That's all you gotta do. You just sit here and you just, there's you and there's the candle. You don't look at the candle, you just be here and there's the candle being there. It's doing its thing, you're doing your thing. And you just sit there with the candle and pretty soon all your thoughts are all around here. They're like little bugs flying in and around the candle flame. Just the candle and all. I can look at the candle and I can see your glasses and I can see your shirt and I can see your dress. I can see all that. I can hear the door opening and I can hear myself talking and see my hands moving and feel my muscles. And there's just me and the candle, just my witness and the candle is the witness and the rest of it's just all happening around us. And as I do this, after a while, pretty soon all this quiets down and I cease to be overwhelmed by all my senses until pretty soon there's just the candle and me. I didn't do anything. I didn't try to do anything. It just happened. And then if I keep doing that, pretty soon I am just there with the candle. Now that's one-pointedness of mind, all right? You've calmed down. You're able to think of one thing. Right? Now, the next part of that, of the next leg, is called dharana, which means doing the same thing on something inside. Like you take ajna, you take this point where these three, three nerves meet up here. And instead of looking at the cow, you close your eyes and you focus on that place right behind your brow, right in there. And again, you just be there. And pretty soon that's where you are. That's all you are, is just a point of consciousness right there. That's it. There's not a body, there's nothing. There's just the point of consciousness right there. Now, when you have succeeded in doing that, you are nearly home. Then you hold it longer and longer, and it's called dhyana, and you hold it longer and longer, and you go into samadhi. Now, as you go, there are different levels of samadhi, which is this state where you've flipped over, and you just, that place, that's all. You've given up everything else but that place. You're still in form, you're still being a candle flame. At that point, you can perform a thing called samyama, because at that point, you see, you have freed your consciousness from your body. In other words, you have overridden that veil of ignorance which con had convinced you all those years that you, which is your pure consciousness, and that body and mind were one and the same thing. And by going down and down to that one place and then going behind, right back in there, you get to a place where you're just pure consciousness. And then, if you are in the candle flame, that's where you are. And samyama is the quality of getting outside of the egocentric predicament. So that when you perform samyama on something, like another person's mind, you are their mind. Literally, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not putting you on, it's not mind reading. You are there, that's where you are, because you're not here, certainly, because you left your body. 
you have merged your consciousness. Here's what's happened. You have purified and purified. You've separated your consciousness from the gross energy body, from the finer energy thought. You get it down to this finest energy, which is what it's been all along, which is called the Atman or Brahma or Prakriti rather. And then it, it, it merges and it becomes the entire place. It's the entire universe. It merges into everything because it's all interchangeable at that level. It's all interchangeable. You see, energy at that level is all interchangeable. And that's all you are, so you are part of it all. That's what the Hindi mean, Hindus mean when they say, well, the place is in samadhi, you go to sat chit ananda. That means absolute existence. It doesn't mean you exist, it means you are existence. Absolute knowledge, it doesn't mean you know, it means you are knowledge. Ananda, bliss, doesn't mean you feel bliss, it means you are bliss. You go to that place where you are it all. And you reside in that place where you are it all in the formless state. And then when there is the requirement for you to come down into some form or bring back something, you merely can go into that form to bring it back. In other words, in that place that he goes to, which I'm going to recite a little poem in a second about it, that place he goes to in Satchit Ananda, there is no time. Past, present, and future, it's all part of the warp and woof of the nature dance. It's all nature's out there. He's part of nature. He's merging it. It's all part of the same thing. But he, from this other point of view, it's all there. He's both, it's both there and he's part of it all. And therefore... Since he's beyond time, he can be anything in any time. So he is actually my mother's swollen belly nine months previously in Boston, Massachusetts, because there is the requirement of my rational mind to be overridden at that point. And that's the thing that is the vehicle he uses, which is the essence vehicle to deal with the emotional love I have for my mother and the feeling of the spiritual link I have with her. And he works with the whole thing, and that's the thing he pulls out of that Akash, brings back into form. But it's all available to him. Ramana Maharshi was 17 years old. He was sitting in his father, his uncle's study. He was a high school student. He wasn't even a religious high school student. And the kid feels he's going to die. And instead of calling somebody, he lies down and he feels himself die and be taken to the burning gut and burned and he goes through the whole trip. And then he says, well, just like I said, who's minding the shop? The same experience, it's the same experience. Except the difference between me and Ramana Maharshi was a little difference in sanskaras because he never came down. See, he was a fully enlightened being at that moment. He stayed that way forever. And so what happened was, Two weeks later, he split from home and he went off to Arunachala, the holy mountain in southern India, climbed up there and he meditated for the rest of his life. And people came by the thousands to, to visit Ramana Maharshi. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful scene. And wise pundits would come from around India and they would ask him these technical questions about specific bits of knowledge from philosophy and from, you know, uh, very esoteric books, and he would give them answer in chapter and verse, though he had never read any of them. It's the same way in which my teacher knows eight languages. 
know, eight is all I've ever seen demonstrated. I assume he knows all languages. He must be all languages. Just like my guru could talk to me in English if he chose to. And he talks to me through my heart because he doesn't have to talk through gross language. And when I went to, in, when I went to Delhi from, from the mountains in March and I went by bus on 14 hour trip to Delhi and I went to American Express and BOAC and all that. And then in the afternoon I was hungry. So I went into a vegetarian restaurant and I had a meal. And at the end of the meal, I had been like living very frugally. So I had ice cream and they had two biscuits for the ice cream. Boy, I savored those biscuits. They were the first, you know, like sweet thing I'd had like that. And then I went to the Buddhist monastery I was staying at that night. And the next day I got on the bus, drove 14 hours back to the temple. The guru had been up in the mountains. I hadn't seen him for several all over a month. A few days later, I hear the guru is back and we all like you get on the bus and everybody's rushing to the guru because it's that feeling of love. You just want to see the guy, which is more or less relevant. And I get there and I fall, Dunda Pranam, and I'm down there and he grabs my hair and he pulls my head back and he looks at me and he says, how'd you like the biscuits? Now, you dig that where his consciousness is, is not only with me in the biscuits, not only with me right here speaking to you, and I mean that literally, literally. You see, I don't know what literal means, but I think I mean it literally. I don't know what a literal means gross senses, but if it doesn't, I mean it literally. He's not only there, but he's every other place at the same time. Like at the same moment he's digging me eating the biscuits, or you know, he could be with his 10,000 other devotees wherever they happen to be, because there's no requirement that you have to be only in one place at one time. When you merge with it all, you are it all. You are it all. And we can't, and we Westerners just can't conceive of what that means because we're so caught in the finite conception of the way it all works, of our consciousness. Ram Tirith, who was a very, very beautiful Indian saint, very high being. He came to the United States in 1906 or something like that, I think. And then around 24 or five, when he was about 20, no, I guess 20, yeah, five, he walked into the Ganga and just kept walking and just finished his incarnation. But he wrote a few lines that are, see, a person like that wrote from inside. So what you're hearing is somebody living in this place. And this is the way he described the place he's living in. I am without form, without limit. I am beyond space, beyond time. I am in everything. Everything is in me. I am the bliss of the universe. Everywhere am I. I am existence absolute, knowledge absolute, bliss absolute. I am that. 
And then he also just said these two little lines. I have no scruple of change, nor fear of death. I was never born, nor had I parents, nor had I parents. While we could go on many hours and I will be happy to talk informally through the evening, I feel that many of you have probably gotten to the satiation point. So I'm just going to end with this very beautiful thing that is very strange. It's a, it was found on a 16th century Norman crucifix. I am the great sun, but you do not see me. I am your husband, but you turn away. I am the captain, but you do not free me. I am the captain whom you will not obey. I am the truth, but you do not believe me. I am that city where you will not stay. I am your wife, your child, but you will leave me. I am that God to whom you will not pray. I am your counsel, but you do not hear me. I am your lover whom you will slay. I am the victor, but you do not cheer me. I am the holy dove that you will slay. I am your life, but if you will not name me, seal up your soul with tears and never blame. Traditional greeting and parting in India is namaste, which means I bless that which is the Atman in you. Therefore, namaste. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.